Welcome to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. Seniors deserve to have a life with respect, dignity, and fulfillment. But as we transition into elderhood, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here are Phyllis and Rubina. Welcome to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. This is Phyllis Amon here with Rubina Chaudhry. Hi, Rubina. How are you doing today? Hello, Phyllis. I'm well. I'm well. I'm here in Southern Connecticut. Do you want to tell our listeners where you are today? I'm in Southern California. Oh, so we're both in the southern area of our states, but on opposite sides of the country. Um, It's a little balmy here. What about the weather out where you are? Uh, It's a little cooler and more comfortable today. It's been very hot the last few days. Okay, great. Uh, So, you know, Rubina, last week we had an interesting conversation on the future of aging. We talked about how people can maintain vibrancy, remain engaged in society, and continue to live a fulfilling life as they advance in years. You know, today let's have a conversation about the various options people have as they have more care, care needs. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Uh, definitely, definitely, Phyllis. As, uh, as we all age, our needs differ. And in researching for this uh, um, episode, I definitely learned more. As uh, listeners may know, I have, my parents are both 91 years old. They're living about 1,000 miles away from me, and I'm an only child. And in the last uh, many years, I've been directly involved in this phase that we're talking about today. So we've... uh, divided our um, conversation today into three sections. One is we'll talk about some of the options that are available as uh, or some of the needs that arise as uh, people age. And then we will interview an expert in uh, nursing, nursing home and uh, regulatory area. And then we'll come back and have a conversation on what some of the resources are available. And uh, we'll also talk about a uh, couple of the books and uh, some uh, work that Phyllis has done, uh, done herself. So as we looked at the stages, uh, we grouped it into five categories. One, independent living. You know, you're retired, whatever the definition of retired, whatever the, when the time it is that you consider yourself retired. You're independent living. The second one, aging in place. You're getting older, your um, needs are changing. Then you come to a stage where the, your needs are more. Then you're either moving in with the family or in a, a place close to the family. We're calling that stage three. Stage four being uh, assisted living, where you're in a, an institutional facility where you get more help. And then the f- fifth stage being nursing homes, which is the topic of our, our uh, conversation today, Phyllis. So we're talking about these five categories. Well, uh, I think I think uh, the listeners will probably be able to, um, different ones identify with different stages. Uh, many people have loved ones, um, older parents who fit into one of these categories. You know, we, you know, in the middle segment, we're going to interview someone um, who specializes in nursing homes. And that's something people uh, certainly don't gravitate to or think that they're going to need. But certainly sometimes that 
does become a need. But, you know, we'll get to that in time. Let's t- start out with, um, you know, independent living is is obviously what you said. People either live in their own homes or apartments or sometimes they move into, you know, retirement communities and, um, you know, they don't really need any kind of assistance. But the next uh, stage, aging in place, is, is a little different. And um, I know you, you had told me that you had some experience with that definitely. with your parents. So you want to tell us about that? Uh, definitely. I think the first stage, you know, the independent living, the I did everything that I could to make their home adaptable. But when it came time that my mom had to move into an assisted living, then my dad was left alone. So we found for him uh, an independent living community, seniors community. And it's completely independent living except for the housekeeping is provided and they eat their food in the dining room. And that worked very well for uh, uh, maybe five years, mm-hmm. five plus years. But as uh, as he began to age in that facility, and this same things will be happening to people that are living in their homes. But in this case, then uh, we had to put in, uh, you know, first he was able to take his medications. Then we had to do the bubble bubble pack of medications. And then came time where he wasn't regularly taking the medication so we had to put in nurse support Uh, a nurse would come in morning and evening to administer his uh, meds then he had a medical issue and needed uh, a catheter so we needed more nursing support so as the time went on the the more support was needed but because he was in this uh, the senior retired community uh and being, you know, by himself, not, you know, not uh, as a couple. And there are couples in that facility as well. This is one-bedroom apartments. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have to worry about grocery shopping, cooking, and meals were provided and didn't have to worry about uh, housekeeping. So that uh, took us uh, a long way in uh, in his progression uh, towards then eventually full care just a few months ago. So when, when you talk about um, that he needed more help um, in terms of support for taking medications or some medical situations, what other kinds of modifications had to be made so that he could continue to live there? Because there are modifications that sure. people need to make, and I don't know if people are so aware of those. Well, at one time he had to stop driving, finally. Um, he made his decision at one time, one year, that he was not going to drive. And then as time goes, he then blamed me for taking his car keys. <laughs> That's not so, unusual, right? So as caregivers, we, we, have, to be, we have to be ready and, and, uh, and thick-skinned. Right. Uh, when uh, you know when uh, when situations change, so then his transportation was uh, uh, was a major issue as well. We were fortunate that this facility had uh, a bus that could take him, but he he never used it. So I had to rely on a friend or on hired help to take him to doctor's visits. I would. Uh, make his doctor's appointments over one or two days for the time when I was going. And actually, uh, it was very heartwarming that I made good relationships with his doctors so that anytime anything went on, they called me. 
and uh, it's uh, it worked out uh, very nicely. And, well, and if if I may share share yeah. an anecdote that comes Absolutely. to my mind. Absolutely. My dad had to have some minor heart surgery. Mm-hmm. So, you know, of course, this was an emergency in the night. He was taken to the hospital and I received the call and I'm, uh, you know, doing all that I can long distance and staff are being very nice. And over the next two mornings, I'm talking to one cardiologist, another surgeon, you know, I'm doing. And then the next morning I'm at breakfast uh, with my husband and a couple of our friends. And I'm just really trying to decide by this time from Friday night, it's Sunday morning. And I'm saying, you know, should I go? Should I not go? What should I do? You know, because I do live in Southern California and they lives in Canada. And my friend made a very nice comment that that put me at ease. She said, you know when you're getting better response from his medical team by being away than you would if you were sitting in the waiting room. So stay put, go in a few days when he's released, take him home and spend the time with him. That, and I did. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. I mean, I and I did that, and it was wonderful advice from a friend. I was going to say that uh, probably people who are listening who do live a distance from their loved one that could be reassuring, because uh, it could have been a very uh, sounds like a very astute observation. Yes, sometimes. Uh, I'd say medical personnel feel more of an uh, obligation to call family members who live further away. Not always, but you know, thankfully, in your case, it, it really it really worked out very well. And I, I hope it does put some listeners at ease that maybe, you know, when they're in that decision making mode, that maybe if they do decide to stay where they are, they could, you know, have some confidence that they'll get the information that they need. But the flip side, if I may share, uh, Phyllis, is I invested in my relationship with those practitioners. So as caregivers, we have to get to know those who are providing care for our elders. And they are very willing to help us. But we have to be proactive. And that's where you know there are lists of things to do, which we will talk about in uh, segment number three. So I was also doing my, my due diligence and, and getting to know them. Well, I, I, that, yeah. is very, that is very important. That's something that I always um, tell people that even it doesn't matter whether it's in a hospital or your loved one is in assisted living or a nursing home or whatever the situation is, that you really have to maintain being an advocate and being very active in that role because that's when that person is going to get, you know, the, the level of care that that you expect that they would receive. Thank you for using that word advocate. I didn't quite realize that, but yes, I have been an advocate. Uh, for my dad's and my parents' care, yes. You know, just going back to that conversation about aging in place and the things people need, there are so many things that people don't even really think about. You know, um, uh, you know. I'm sure you, you went through some of this, whether they're grab bars or maybe raised toilet seats or people think about, you know, they may have to widen a doorway for a wheelchair. But, you know, there's an example that I always give to people that they don't really probably think about. And that is that uh, sometimes, you know, you wonder why people haven't really eaten 
And uh, it could be something as simple as that the microwave is above the stove and they may have a walker or they're unsteady on their feet. And um, how are they going to open the microwave door, uh, take the plate, put it in the microwave, and then when, when the microwave has completed its, its um, cycle, open the door, take out a hot plate with two hands and put it down and maintain their balance. And so, you know, there are resources that people could go to to find out about uh, the changes that they can make. Actually, there's a, a place called the Hartford Center for Mature Market Excellence. They have home safety guides, home design and planning, and practical guides to enhance independent living. Uh, that's just one resource as an example. If people were interested, they could go to hartfordhealthcare.org and download some of the information. But I'm sure there are many other resources out there. It's just one that, you know, I came across in doing this research that I thought was interesting. Uh, definitely, definitely, Phyllis. It, um, and, uh, you know, simple things as uh, removing area rugs. Right. Because they're, uh, uh, you know, a tip. Uh, tipping and falling hazard and uh, the other thing I learned as my mother got older is that there are pants that are padded they are like sweatpants that you can buy which I did so that if they, when they fall the, the, it's not as severe <laughs> there's more padding uh, I have to tell you padding. I probably wouldn't need that but that's a whole other that's a whole other conversation <laughs> but, but you know I had a visit with the physiotherapist and right. among other things uh, and, and I bought my mom two pairs of pants and, uh, and she wears them uh, and I try to check up on her that she is wearing them but, uh, but you know there are definitely resources available little things Things that you can pick things uh, from the floor, you know, if you drop something, little grab sticks. Uh, There are lots of resources. And those of us who are caregivers, uh, we need to do research. And those of us that are advocates, Phyllis, like you and and myself, uh, I think we are beginning to maybe uh, collate some of that research and make that available. And as time goes, definitely Phyllis and I will be putting resources up on our um, website at uh, at Voice America uh, Empowerment Channel as well, uh, but it's the information is available. It takes time to research it, and when you need it, you're in more in a panic mode. So it's better to be prepared. Well, c- correct, and I. I'll use the word advocate. I advocate for people to do their due diligence beforehand because, you know, more often than not, there is going to be a situation that arises where they are going to need the in, in, the information. And like you said, then you're kind of in panic mode and you don't know where to turn. So although we don't want to think about needing that information, we do arm ourselves with information in many, you know, in many other aspects of our lives. You know, we, we, we get car insurance, we don't think about being in a car accident, and there are many other examples. So people should really think about this as they have older parents, and uh, they, or they themselves may be getting older, to look into some of these areas, find out the resources, and get the information beforehand. I know we didn't go in through some into some of the other options. There are cottage options where you could actually rent a little. It's kind of like a pod and move it onto your the the property of your um, of your family members. You know, if you're not moving in with them, um, mm-hmm. you know, there are so many other options out there that um, 
and I'm sure in future shows we'll we'll really go into some of those other options. But definitely, as uh, seniors uh, progress in age, they need more and more care, and uh, closeness to family and support is uh, is very important for this. Yeah, absolutely, and. Um, you know, it, it is um, a conversation that people really should be having beforehand rather than, again, preparing, waiting for that opportunity as you see signs, whether you're living near your loved one or they're living a distance away. There are ways to start to introduce that conversation. And, um, you know, everybody's really on the same team concerned about the care of their loved ones. So, you know, we'll be uh, heading into our next segment where we're going to be interviewing Dr. Charlene Harrington. And um, when we come back, Rubina and I will continue the conversation. So uh, see you back here in a few moments and um, continue listening to us on Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Great. On the empowerment channel of Voice America. Thank you for this. Absolutely. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Phyllis Amen, the voice for elder care advocacy, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones in short-term rehab, long-term care, or memory care. Her unique knowledge comes from working in over 40 skilled nursing facilities. Phyllis's passion for quality care and quality of life for our loved ones sets her apart. She encourages families to plan by choice, not by crisis. Visit phyllisheldercare.info for a consultation. Phyllis is also a speaker for both the public and private sector on various issues related to caregiving, communication, empathy, and aging. Rabina Chantry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of all of Community Services, a 501c3, which provides culturally appropriate supportive services to seniors, their families, and the community. Rabina's passion for the elder population stems from her experience as an only child living over 1,000 miles away from her aging parents, who are now 91 years of age. She understands the delicate issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org to get further information about Olive's programs and services. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email your hosts from the Voices for Elder Care Advocacy show page on Voice America. Now, back to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Welcome back. I'm personally very excited to have our next guest. 
Here's Rubina with the introduction. Thank you, Phyllis. Our guest today is Dr. Charlene Harrington. She is Professor Emeritus of Sociology and Nursing in the Department of Sociology and Nursing at uh, University of California, San Francisco. She has been elected to the American Academy of Nursing and the Institute of Medicine. Now it's called the Academies of Medicine. Dr. Harrington has either authored or co-authored over 300 publications. As member of Institute of Medicine, her 1986 study titled Improving the Quality of Care in America's Nursing Homes gave rise to the 1987 Nursing Home Reform Law. She, re she lectures nationally and internationally on the long-term care challenges. She wrote the foreword for the book Overdue, Quality Care for Our Elder Citizens, which was written by our host, uh, Phyllis Amen. Voices, of elder, Voices for Elder Care Advocacy is honored to welcome Dr. Charlene Harrington. Oh, thanks, Rubina. You know, I was, uh, I was thrilled when uh, Dr. Harrington agreed to write the foreword for my book. And I am also I'm honored and thrilled to have her here as a guest. So um, may I call you Charlene? Yes, please. Oh, thanks so much. So, you know, I guess I want the listeners to hear what inspired you to dedicate your life's work to issues surrounding nursing homes. Well, I, after I finished graduate school, I went to work for the state of California and reviewed the situation with the regulation of healthcare facilities. And at that time, in the 70s, we found that nursing homes were operating at a very low level, and quality was a serious problem. And we found that the regulation was so weak. So I started... Uh, working on those issues and became the, re the director of regulation for nursing homes in California. And after that, I, I um, went to the university and became a professor and continued to do my work on long-term care because I found that it's, there's such a great need and it's such an interesting area. Oh, I agree with you. You know, there are... Um as, at last count, I think there are over 15,000 nursing homes in this country uh, where over one point, I think it's six million people are residing. And yes, you know, there, there are tremendous issues. I've worked in over 40 skilled nursing facilities, as I, I've said um, before in our previous um, episodes. So, you know, I, I'm also very well aware of all of those issues. So, you know, what were specifically some of the issues surrounding the need for the 1987 nursing home reform law? Well, the, the quality problems were very uh, widespread. And the, <clears throat> those problems including, included pressure sores, falls, weight loss, um, just generally poor nursing care. So in 1987, Congress established a very strong law. In fact, it's one of the best in the whole world uh, in terms of the law. 
end of regulation. But, uh, and since that time, Congress has made a number of improvements in the law. So we have very good laws. We just don't have good enforcement of them. Mm, but why do you think that is? Improvements. Why do you think there, there, haven't, there hasn't been good enforcement of the laws? What do you think contributes to that? Well, this, the enforcement is uh, at the state level, and states vary in terms of their capacity and their willingness to enforce the law. So there's wide variation across states. And there's also variation in the nursing homes across the states in terms of their staffing levels and the ownership. Many nursing homes are for-profit, almost 70% are for-profit. So they're trying to make money in a situation where the reimbursement levels are quite low. So they cut corners on staffing and food and services in those types of homes. So there's many factors that relate to the poor enforcement, but it's, it's been a continuing problem. You know, you bring up the for-profit, uh, for-profit nursing homes, and some of them are part of large chains. Um, that continue to grow across the country. And is anything being done to, to address that issue? You know, the fact that chains are kind of going across the country, you know, buying nursing homes and then perpetuating this way of caring for people in a, in a less than satisfactory way. Well, unfortunately, no. The, the chains are now getting to be close to 60% of all the nursing homes. And these, uh, our research studies show that the large nursing home for-profit chains have the lowest staffing of all the facilities and the worst quality. And uh, this has been spreading rather than decreasing, and some of these chains are very financially unstable, and, and so they go in and out of business, and they buy and sell facilities, so that contributes to the poor quality nationally. Hmm, very interesting. I, um, you know, the, the chains that I know of personally um, you know, have been around for a while, so I haven't seen that kind of instability in terms of their finances, but nevertheless, I still see the issues around poor staffing um, and, you know, a less than, you know, less than adequate quality of food and, um, you know, a, a variety of issues that face nursing home residents. Um, you know, another important issue is the antipsychotic drugging issue. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yes, that's been a continuing problem in nursing homes where many residents are given antipsychotic drugs, and these drugs are not recommended by the government and physicians because they have very negative side effects, but they're given by nursing homes primarily to keep people quiet. And there's a strong relationship 
with nursing homes that don't have enough staff and the over-medication of residents. So that's a problem that uh, the government has been trying to address. Uh, yeah, I, um, I did read something, you know, I did read about that, that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that oversees nursing homes um, who take Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement is trying to address the issue with antipsychotic drugging. Do you think it's, um, do you think any headway has really been made in that area? And what can people do if they find that their loved one has received these drugs uh, inappropriately? Well, uh, the patient is supposed to give informed consent. They're supposed to either agree to the drugs or the family is supposed to agree. And if, if a family or caregivers think that uh, a resident is getting too many drugs, they need to complain and, and uh, ask to have the patient taken off of the, those drugs. So uh, the, in this case, the family and the caregivers are critically important in trying to reduce the use because the, the use hasn't really been reduced over the past five years. Uh, patients have just been put in different categories so the nursing homes don't have to report <laughs> the, the use of the drugs. So. Right, they give them a diagnosis that would um, that that would um, confirm the need for the antipsychotic drugs. I guess. Yes, that's right. So twenty percent right. of all the residents are being given too many drugs. So that that's a serious problem. It but is the, a serious uh, problem, especially with interaction. Um, interaction of, of drugs. I know they have pharmacies that are supposed to look at this, but I've been in, in buildings where people are receiving, you know, over 20 medications. Wow. Yes. You know, um, how, how, how do families, um, because I'm sure if families go and ask, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll have a doctor give them the reason or a nurse give them the reason. How can they um, advocate for that? Because I don't, can't think of any reason why somebody really needs to take 20 or 30 medications. The interactions between the two can be, you know, very concerning. Well, the, the families can uh, ask for a change in the physician or they, they definitely can um, opt to refuse to have the drugs given. It's, they have the right to refuse. Well, that's important for people to know. Um, yes. So, uh, you know, let me ask you this. Um, do you see any positive changes on the horizon for people who are, you know, residing in nursing homes? And, um, yeah, do you see any positive changes? Well, I think the most positive changes have been the increase in the use of therapy over the past uh, say, 10 or 15 years, the physical therapy, speech, and occupational therapy, which is very important in helping individuals um, regain their functioning and being able to go home. So we see more therapy being given and more individuals being able to return to the community. So that that's a very positive step. But I think the the underlying problems of inadequate staffing 
are continue to be very severe. The experts have recommended a certain minimum level of nurse staffing, especially RN staffing, and 70% of all the nursing homes are not meeting those minimum uh, recommended standards. And and that, of course, affects the quality of care. You know, um, the, doesn't the law really still state that nursing homes only need to have eight hours a day, seven days a week of a, a registered nurse on duty? Is that still the law, or has that been changed? Yes, that's still the law, but it also says that they must have sufficient staffing to meet the needs of the residents. So that means they need to meet what is the professional standard of care. So they're very vulnerable when they are not providing adequate nursing uh, care. You know, I guess I'd say that the term sufficient staffing is open to interpretation. Wouldn't you say that? Uh, Yes, it is, but the research shows what the minimum staffing should be, and then the staffing should be increased for when the patients have more uh, care needs. So uh, it's not difficult to determine how much staff they need to have. It's just that when nursing homes are trying to make profits, They're cutting on their staffing, especially the RN staffing, and trying to disregard those standards. Uh, You know, I read something interesting recently that said that um, just what you're saying, that there are still um, nursing homes in the country that do not provide the at least minimum registered nurse staffing eight hours a day, seven days a week, and those facilities have become special focus facilities uh, to require closer scrutiny by the, um, by the states and by the federal government. Is, has that been effective, do you think? Well, that, that's just been put in place. So, uh, but I think the main thing to let um, listeners know about is that they can go on the web and go to Medicare Nursing Home Compare and look up the quality ratings for the nursing homes in their area. And we know that if patients go to the higher quality nursing homes, they get much better care and they have better outcomes. They're more less likely to end up back in the hospital and more likely to be able to be discharged home. So looking at these ratings is very important. So uh, I do want to ask you a question about that. We, we are coming near the end of our interview, but, um, you know, I wanted to ask you about Nursing Home Compare because I myself have been in buildings that, you know, are rated quite high, but when I've gone into the building and saw the level of care that was being delivered, it really didn't quite measure up. So what do you think about that? Yes, I think that's uh, often the case. So the rating is on a one-star to five-star system, with five stars being the highest. So if a facility is rated as a one- or two-star, that definitely should put up red flags, and uh, individuals should be very cautious about going to those nursing homes. 
But a five-star rating doesn't necessarily mean that it's good. It, it means that it's better than other homes, but they still can have quality problems. So res, uh, families should visit these uh, nursing homes before they select them. But in any case, even if a, a resident goes to a four- or five-star home, it's important to have family members and caregivers visit and be vigilant about their care. Uh, I agree with you. You know, I tell people that um, just because, a, you know, you've transitioned your loved one into a nursing home doesn't mean that, you know, that's where your involvement or advocacy ends. Maybe it seems that way or you're anticipating that they will get good care, but it, it really, you really need to be active, even if you live a distance away, to call regularly and, um, you know, so they know there's somebody that cares that's looking out for this person. So, you know, we just have a few seconds left. Do you have any final points uh, that you'd like the listeners to know? Just in the last, we have like a little less than 30 seconds. Well, I think nursing homes are an, an important resource, but I, you, uh, individuals have to be very uh, cautious about the ones that they go into and try to pick the best nursing homes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, thanks so much, Charlene. This has been so informative and helpful. We're going to take a short break now. Stay tuned when we return as Rubina and I continue the conversation on nursing homes and what people need to know. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Phyllis Amen, the voice for elder care advocacy, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones in short-term rehab, long-term care, or memory care. Her unique knowledge comes from working in over 40 skilled nursing facilities. Phyllis's passion for quality care and quality of life for our loved ones sets her apart. She encourages families to plan by choice, not by crisis. Visit phyllisheldercare.info for a consultation. Phyllis is also a speaker for both the public and private sector on various issues related to caregiving, communication, empathy, and aging. Rubina Chantry is president and founder of Mars Services, an engineering management consulting firm, as well as founder and president of Olive Community Services, a 501c3, which provides culturally appropriate supportive services to seniors, their families, and the community. Rubina's passion for the elder population stems from her experience as an only child living over 1,000 miles away from her aging parents, who are now 91 years of age. She understands the delicate issues and decisions caregivers face. Visit olivecs.org to get further information about Olive's programs and services. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. You are tuned in to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy with Phyllis Amon and Rubina Chaudhry. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, 
please feel free to email your hosts from the Voices for Elder Care Advocacy show page on Voice America. Now, back to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Welcome back. In this segment, I would like to ask Phyllis to share with us her experiences of having worked in nursing homes for over 40 years and the resources that she's created as, a, as an advocate for, uh, for elders. And some of those resources include, she's written a couple of books, she's prepared a checklist. Uh, Phyllis, if you can share with us first how you got interested in the, in the nursing home industry and then share with us some of your findings and how each one of us can be a better consumer. Oh, thanks, Rubina. So uh, the story uh, starts back when I was 15 years old, and um, my mother was caring for her mother, my grandmother, who lived quite a distance from our home. And my mom used to travel, I'd say, about two and a half hours, several times a week by bus and train um, to spend time with her because she was declining secondary to Parkinson's, and she had also fallen and had a broken hip. And then, obviously, it was about a year or so. It, it took its toll on my mother, on the family. You know, we 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 will address the, you know the impact that these things have on families. And my mother really wanted um, her mom to move into our home, but I was 15 at the time, and we had a rather small home. And my father felt that the hospital bed that my grandmother needed you know, would have had to have been in the center of the living room. And he didn't think that was a great situation for me as a teenager, but also for the family, we'd all be on call 24 hours a day. So there was a small nursing home a few blocks from our home. And um, that's where my grandmother was transitioned into. Oddly enough, you know, I had passed that building many times on my way to school and, of course, never thought about it. And so my mother would go every morning about eight or nine in the morning and stay there until my grandmother was asleep. And she did that for quite some time. And then there were a a period of a couple of weeks where my parents went on vacation. And my sister and I took turns filling in those same shifts that my mother uh, took for her mother. And, um, you know, the first time I went there wasn't the most pleasant experience, especially for a 15-year-old. And... um, you know, as our, as Charlene Harrington had said years ago, the, the situations in nursing homes were quite dismal. And I remember going and, and running out, actually, and walking around the block and crying until and, I could kind of compose myself and take care of her, which I did for the next couple of weeks. Later on, years later, when I became a professional speech pathologist, I guess that space kept calling me, and that's how I wound up working in, in nursing homes. And yes, I've been a speech pathologist for over 40 years, um, so I guess I'm at that advanced age. <laughs> but um, I've, I've also worked in over 40 skilled nursing facilities. And, um, you know, I, I stepped out of that space primarily because I wanted to help families become more effective advocates for their loved ones by giving them much-needed information because, you know, people go and ask questions. And, you know, there are many places people go could find out 
questions to ask. But if they don't know the information behind those questions, then they don't really know about the answers that they're getting. They can't evaluate the answers. They can't ask a follow-up question. And they need to know their rights so that they know what they can demand. Who, by the way, who ultimately will be ourselves, right? So um, that's how I stepped into that role. And yes, I've written two books. Thank you for mentioning that. The first one was Nursing Homes to Rehabilitation Centers, What Every Person Needs to Know. To tell you the truth, it got a little technical and academic. And that was the reason I wrote the second book, Overdue Quality Care for Elder Citizens, which came out earlier this year. And, you know, what I found out was that um, most people enter the, the skilled nursing facility space initially because there's some kind of situation. You described it yourself with your father. And, um, you know, they wind up in the hospital. Maybe they fell. Maybe it's a heart situation. It could even be planned. It could even be, you know, a hip replacement or a knee replacement. And then they have to go to short-term rehabilitation situation in a skilled nursing facility. So, yes, I do have this checklist that people can um, find out about. It's on my website, phyllisheldercare.info, and there's a little button where they can access that information. It's a lot of information about what to look for and what to ask for if you need um, to be on a short-term rehabilitation unit in a skilled nursing facility. Yeah, Phyllis, I had the opportunity of uh, looking at that list and reviewing and uh, I myself learned so much that I will be able to apply. And one of the first things that you talk about is the importance of your observations. Right. You know, that that you have to trust your eyes and ears and your senses and go in with the with the, you know, desire to to observe. Uh, what are some of the other Questions. I know you. It's a forty-plus questions. But right. Maybe you could uh, <laughs> about share, 50, right? <laughs> a share, um, a share a few of the important ones with our listeners that are, uh, you know, in addition to be, be aware of your senses and 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 uh, and and your gut feeling and and be alert, basically. Uh, please share a few of the the key questions, uh, and then we can obviously, you know, go to your your list and and take a look at the rest. Thank you. Well, you know, I, um, you know, Charlene Harrington mentioned this about staffing. So I would say in terms of trusting your instincts or your observation, you know, if you go into a facility and you hear bells going off and, and nobody seems to be answering those bells, that certainly would be an indication of the response time that your loved one would receive. Um, in addition, I would ask about the very important question about what is the, um, you know, how often is there a registered nurse on duty? Um, you know, and ver- and I would also ask about other staffing, you know, certified nurses aides who do provide the bulk of the care for residents. And um, I would ask about the staffing during the day as opposed to evening, as opposed to night as opposed to weekends, holidays, because many facilities experience short staffing on those other shifts or other times. And obviously, the person wouldn't receive, you know, the kind of care that they probably should if if that were the case. So that's a very important question. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I do want to, um, you know, mention something. Um, you had a uh, said this about in a previous conversation you and I had that when you chose a uh, place 
for your your mother, I think it was, that you made sure it was culturally appropriate and that she had the kind of food that she, you know, would enjoy. And I that's an important question. Um, talk about cultural diversity and all of that. You know, people need to know that there will be people there who will understand them, who will speak their language. Um, even if they come from a different country, that they'll be able to relate to them. Will there be foods that they enjoy? Because if not, then people are not going to eat. And, you know, that's an, an important, uh, obviously, we all need nutrition. So if, that's a very important issue that people experience. And definitely in that same area in your list, what I picked up was that when there is that sensitivity, uh, to ask if uh, the facility allows you to bring food in. You know, sometimes you're where we have to go, they might not be able to provide it, but if they're open to bringing it, uh, that that is a good question as well. Uh, well can, how, I, can I, I'm sorry, sure. don't mean to interrupt, no. but I'd like to just interject something at that point. Uh, while I always encourage families to bring food, it is important to find out if the person has any dietary restrictions from the point, from a medical point of view. You know, some people have con- conditions where they they um, can't have as much liquid as they'd like, or there are other limitations in terms of maybe the consistency of the food that they're eating. So it's a very important to question to ask what are what can they bring if it just because some people say yes you can bring food it they really have to go further than that and find out about the consistency and any other mm-hmm. limitations in terms of diet uh, definitely how about uh, some of the questions related to what uh, activities and uh, therapy and uh, that is available what kind of questions would you ask the facility Well, certainly, you know, one of the hallmarks, I think, of nursing homes that we all would probably picture is that people kind of sitting aimlessly, you know, staring out a window or, you know, not having much interaction with people. So it is very important to ask how many activities there are. If they have a central activity, um, you know, what happens if the person doesn't want to go to that activity? Will they be able to be engaged while they're on the unit? And, um, you know, the range of activities, will they be activities that they would particularly be interested in? You know, there are um, models of care that are, and now also the Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Services, you know, everything is geared towards the patient, towards their meeting their needs, to making sure that they experience, you know, they don't experience loneliness. You could be amongst people and, and be lonely if nobody is really interacting with you. So those are important questions um, to ask. Of course, I go into more detail in that in the, in the questionnaire, but that is a very uh, important question. Mm-hmm. One thing that I want to share uh, from my experience when you're going into places like this, it, it's a it's a certain mindset that they're helping you, they're serving you, and 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 looking at your um, and reading your checklist. And thank you for sharing that with me. I was very clearly reminded that the patient and the family are the clients. Right. And I think that's an important paradigm shift that that we need to remind ourselves and all of our listeners that that we we are the clients 
of of these uh, these facilities and uh, as clients you know we respectfully ask for information and uh, and uh, and uh, all that goes with it yeah i i i do tell people you know uh People tend to think because they need care for their loved one or for themselves that they're at the mercy of the provider. But the reality is they really are in the driver's seat, especially as Charlene says, a lot of these places are for profit. And so every every business needs customers. So you really are the customer. People don't think of it that way because it's healthcare. And so I'm glad you brought that up because I do tell people, you know, you can advocate, you can ask questions, you can you can demand certain things. There is a um, resident bill of rights. People can look that up. They could look it up at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Cert- Services, CMS.gov. I also have it in my book. There are plenty of places to, to resources to find out that information so that you know what you could really demand for your loved one and, and you know, and for yourself. Phyllis? Thank you very much. There's just so much that we can be talking about, and uh, and I'm hopeful in the future we'll be able to take live questions. But we do have some written questions. Maybe we can take uh, uh, one very quick one. Well, let's see. Very quickly, because I don't think I think we have like thirty seconds left. Oh, sorry. Okay. Well, we we will. Okay, we will address questions in future uh, sessions. Obviously, this is a vast, vast topic, and we're just beginning to uh, touch base, and we will have more opportunities to, to talk and continue our conversation. Phyllis? Yeah, okay. So, you know, I, I hope everybody enjoyed this uh, this information. I think Dr. Charlene Harrington is a tremendous resource and offers very valuable information. I think Rubina and I, our conversation and the information we offer to people is so valuable. So I hope that people will tune in for our next show next Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Empowerment Channel of Voice America. And thanks for listening to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Thank you for listening this week to Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. Please join your hosts, Phyllis Amon and Robina Chaudhry, again next Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week.